Well, good morning, family. It's good to be with you this morning. I encourage you to take your Bibles, if you would, open to the book of Daniel as we continue looking at this absolutely marvelous little book. And uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we dig in. Great God and Father, thank You so much for the blessed privilege to be here together as the family, together opening Your book. And in these precious minutes to read in Your Word, we ask, Father, that um, You would take Your Word and by Your grace that You would enable the clumsy lips of this inadequate preacher to somehow explain Your Word clearly that You would open our ears fully that we might hear Your voice, that we might know You better, that we might love and worship You more devotedly, that we might be changed to be more completely reflect Your glory. For that is what You have created us to do as image bearers. To reflect Your glory. So this morning, shape us and make us more like Jesus. It's in His name we ask it. Amen. There's an old country song by Mac Davis. It goes something like this. Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror I get better looking each day. To know me is to love me. I must be a really great man. Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. You remember that one? Yeah. (laughs) Pride. Pride is a common problem. We all struggle with it again and again from time to time. Pride was the sin that began all sin. Satan's prideful rebellion. Pride is a common sin, but it is also a great sin. Pride is a sin that puts a person in opposition with God. As James wrote, he said, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. As we come here to Daniel chapter 4, if you read through the chapter, it would seem that what is the story here is all about pride. That the message is that God humbles a very proud man. And in fact, that is the story here. And if you need that message this morning, there it is. God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble, and God will humble the proud. If you need it, grab it, take it, embrace it. That's your message this morning. But the book, while that's here, this story is more than that. This morning we're going to focus on another message here in this story. 
You see, this, this chapter 4 here of Daniel is the final scene in a drama that has been unfolding through the book. The drama of the spiritual journey of a most unlikely protagonist, a most unlikely hero. It's the spiritual journey of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Let me just take us in a quick review as we kind of catch us up to speed. See, in scene one is, is chapter one in Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar unwittingly begins this spiritual journey. He's a young general who has just subjugated the nation of Israel. Uh, to him. He's conquered Jerusalem. He's gotten word that his father died and he's hurrying back to Babylon to, to take the throne. In so doing, he has brought along with him some captives from Judah, some of the best and brightest, including Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. They're going to be instrumental in his journey. Scene 2 is same chapter, chapter 1. About two years later, a little over two years later, as these guys graduate from the intensive training and re-education and reprogramming efforts by Babylon, as they graduate from Babylon University and Nebuchadnezzar brings them in and tests all the students and he finds as he examines these Four godly young men, godly young Jewish guys, he finds that these men are extraordinary. He is totally blown away by the depth of their knowledge, the depth of their wisdom, of their insight, their character. And in his estimation, he values these, these four as ten times better than all of the wise men in all of his kingdom. And so, Nebuchadnezzar brings them into the service of the king. Scene 3 is chapter 2 of Daniel. It's later that same year that Nebuchadnezzar is troubled by a dream. The wise men, as he called them in, could not tell him the dream and its interpretation. For Nebuchadnezzar had insisted on both that they tell him the dream. They couldn't do it. So he orders the execution, but Daniel and his friends are not there. Apparently they're still apprentices off to the, you know, left out of the loop. But when the executioner comes, by God's grace, they're granted a quick audience. Daniel is with the king. He gets more time. They go pray. God gives him the answer. Daniel goes to the king. You know the story and, and says, King, God has given me the answer to your dream. Not because I'm special, but because there's a God who reveals mysteries. When he reveals the king's dream and the interpretation, Nebuchadnezzar is again impressed. He bows down and honors Daniel and he gives worship and honor to God and declares that Daniel's God truly is God of gods and the revealer of mysteries. And then he promotes Daniel to the second highest place in the kingdom and promotes his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah to high places in the government and in the kingdom. Scene 4 
We looked at last week. Many of you were stuck at home with snow and ice, but uh, those of us who were here, we looked here at chapter 3 in Daniel and scene 4. It's sometime later, at, it, it's, I think, about 16 years after these young men entered the king's service, that Nebuchadnezzar erects a statue or an image, I should say, on, on the plains of Dura. He calls together a grand dedication ceremony, a massive celebration and, and a big event, and he demands that everyone fall down and worship this image when the music plays. Most of you know this story well. It's one of the most familiar in the Bible. And these young men will not bow. They knew the Scriptures. They knew that to bow down is to violate the commandments that you shall have no other gods before Me. You shall not make an image and bow down and worship it. You shall No idolatry. They refuse. If it's obey the King or obey God, we will obey God. And so you know the story. They're thrown into a fiery furnace. God miraculously delivers them out of the fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar, now once again confronted with the, with the reality of God, with the power of God, Nebuchadnezzar declares that surely the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the God of gods, that He is God Most High, and He issues a declaration throughout all the kingdom that says that anyone who, who says anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be executed. He provides on the spot religious freedom and religious protection for all the Jews who have now come into the Babylonian kingdom. So chapter 3 closes with Nebuchadnezzar having had several encounters with these godly people and with the power of God. And he is impressed by God. But that's still a different thing than being a believer in God. As Nebuchadnezzar has been moving along in this journey, God has worked through various means, various ways to get His attention and to get His message to him. But in each step, God has used His people to speak truth to Nebuchadnezzar. May I say that is God's method of operation, His modus operandi. God always speaks through His people to get truth to an unbelieving world. As we go through here, as we come to the final scene, chapter 4, the fifth and final scene in Nebuchadnezzar's spiritual journey, once again, another godly person is going to be right there and instrumental in it. And what I want us to take away this morning as we read and look at this story is I want us to see some principles in how Daniel reacts and, and deals with Nebuchadnezzar that I think are important for you and I if we're going to be effective communicators of God's truth to a lost world. So chapter 4, as we look at this final chapter in Nebuchadnezzar's journey, because after chapter 4, he disappears off the page. 
Verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs! How mighty His wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. These verses, and indeed the rest of the chapter, are astounding things to read for, for several reasons. First of all, you might note that you might note who's talking. These are the words of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar himself is the one who speaks in this entire chapter. Daniel is writing them down for us. But I didn't know if you ever knew before that the king of Babylon basically wrote a chapter in your Bible. He's writing about 20 years after chapter 3, the fiery furnace incident. And Nebuchadnezzar here in this chapter honors God with such language that many scholars and theologians as they study this, they conclude that Nebuchadnezzar has become a true believer. You and I, when we get to heaven, we're going to find King Nebuchadnezzar is there. We don't know that for a fact. We'll figure it out when we get there. But it would not surprise me because it seems to me that Nebuchadnezzar has moved at this point from an idolater to a God worshiper. So the question that comes up is, what happened? What has moved King Nebuchadnezzar from a pagan idolater into a guy who sounds in this chapter, he sounded like a preacher. What has brought about this kind of a change in this man? And the answer is, well, the rest of the chapter tells us because Nebuchadnezzar wants to tell his story. He said, as we read in verse 2 there, it seemed good to me, it seemed like a right thing to do to tell you what God has done in my life. We're going to find out what has made this change in him. In church terms, we call this a testimony. This fifth scene here in Daniel is Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. He has to take us on a little flashback, a little trip back in time. He goes back about probably seven, maybe eight years back before he's writing this. Verse 4, he says what happened. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the Spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the Spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw 
and their interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar was comfy. He says, I was sitting back in my palace. Everything was going along just fine. Life was peachy. We were at peace. Basically, all his, he'd conquered all of his enemies. The nation was at peace. He was at rest. They were secure. The economy was good. Stocks were up. Unemployment was down. Life was good in Babylon. And then he has a dream. A dream, he says, that terrified him. So he orders in all the wise guys, has them come in and says, tell me, what does this dream mean? And it's sounding like deja vu all over again. <laughs> Back in chapter 2, same thing. Had a dream, called in all the wise men. And just like what happened back then, except in this case, he doesn't tell them to tell him his dream. He tells them the dream. But he asks for an interpretation. And once again, they sit there going, I'm not sure. And last, verse, Nine, Daniel came in. Notice what he says about Daniel in verse 9. Chief of the magicians. What he's saying is, in other words, you're the best. Of all the wise men, Daniel, you are the best. You are the top of the pile. Glad you're here. And he says, I know that no mystery is too difficult for you. Nothing stumps you, Daniel. And I know that no mystery is too difficult for you because in you is the Spirit of the holy gods. And remember, Nebuchadnezzar is not a believer yet. He's still a guy who he's known some stuff about God. He's not a God follower yet. And he's speaking as he was back then. And he said, I know that there's a Spirit of the holy gods in you, Daniel. And he says he's called Belteshazzar after the name of his God because at the time, Bel was his God. Nebuchadnezzar's theology is all messed up. But there's two things he's learned for sure over the last 25 or so years. Maybe 30 years that he's had Daniel coming in before him. Two things he knows. Daniel is a man with the wisdom of God because he has a connection with God. He knows Daniel has God's truth because Daniel has a relationship with God. May I say that Daniel has been speaking truth faithfully and persistently he and his three friends, 25 to 30 years. Every time they have opportunity, they speak a word of wisdom. They speak a word about God. They speak the word of God to Nebuchadnezzar. They've been faithful witnesses with their words and faithful witnesses with their lives. Telling Nebuchadnezzar about the true God. And what Nebuchadnezzar is saying here is, he knows. He knows. 
hasn't been lost on Nebuchadnezzar. And I wonder, if Nebuchadnezzar really thinks that Daniel has it in with the real God, and Nebuchadnezzar really is the guy who, for, with whom no mystery is too big, why does he call in these other losers? And apparently it's his normal thing to do, even though over the last 25 to 30 years, every time we've seen them, they've dropped the ball. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't explain why he does that. May I offer possibly a little explanation? Because I have a feeling if you are here this morning and you've tried to live faithfully for Jesus Christ, and if you've tried to share Christ with others, if you've tried to be faithful in giving wherever you can godly wisdom and godly insight to folks who aren't yet believers in Christ, you have probably discovered that most folks don't respond like this. Wow! Thanks! I've been waiting for somebody to tell me this. Rather, most folks are kind of like, they tune you out. Turn, turn you off. Have you noticed that's kind of the tendency? At least my experience. And most folks will prefer to listen to Dr. Phil than the Word of God. They will prefer to listen to the culture for advice rather than Jesus Christ. They will prefer to watch YouTube to get wonderful information, or listen to their drinking buddies, anything other than, you know, don't bother me with what God has to say. See, I think there's a tendency of the sinful, rebellious heart to seek out sources that will tell us what we want to hear, even if we have a pretty good suspicion that they're wrong. Paul told Timothy, people are going to be like that in the last times. I think people have always been like that. They seek out what their ears want to hear rather than what God has to say. People will avoid listening to God until everything else in their world has crashed and burned around them. When there is no other place to turn is when most people finally go, okay, God. What are you trying to tell me? And that's where Nebuchadnezzar is. He's exhausted every other resource and now he says, Oh, Daniel! (laughs) I know the Spirit of God is in you. I need help. So don't give up. Hang in there. Speak the truth of God faithfully, persistently as you have opportunity even when it seems folks won't listen. Verse 10, The visions of my head, as Nebuchadnezzar is telling Daniel, as I lay in bed were these, I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and it became strong, and its top reached to heaven. 
and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. And I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed and said this, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump and its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. And let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom He will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation but you are able, for the Spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now this week I read this dream several times, trying to my best to put on new glasses, trying to look at it through the lens of somebody who had never heard this before, never heard what it means, and trying to, to read it like that. I'm hearing it for the first time. I discovered that's very difficult to do, first of all. But, but secondly, it just seems to me that if you are a person with some pretty good intelligence and you're a little bit thoughtful and you read this just a little bit, it's not that hard. It seems that at least 80% of this is self-explanatory. Let's see, there's a tree that grows up big and strong, tall, visible to everyone in the earth. Kind of fills the place, dominates the place. It's higher than everything else. It's strong and powerful. It provides protection. It provides sustenance. It provides you know, employment and resources to everyone under it. Fruitful and strong. Let's see here. What could this be? We get down to verse 16 and it says, It's a man. Let him be. So it's a man who's the tallest, biggest person in the world in terms of power and strength and influence. Let's see here. Who could that possibly be? Duh. It's King Nebuchadnezzar. And what happens to the tree? It's cut down. He's going to be cut down, made low. Let him be given the mind of a beast. He's going to, he's going to go insane. He's going to go crazy. He's going to have the mind of an animal. And he's going to live outside with the animals where he's going to get rained on and, and the dew is going to be settling on him. He's just going to live like an animal. Now, am I wrong or is that pretty apparent? 
So if that's the case, then why is there a room full of wise guys, the smartest guys in the kingdom, who are all sitting there going, oh, it beats me. We, don't, we, we can't get it, king. Well, I side with one commentator who said, these wise men are more short of courage than they are insight. Not that they don't get the big picture, it's that nobody wants to say it. Well, King, you're the big tree that's going to get cut down. You're going to lose your mind, become an animal, live outside, eat grass for seven periods of time. Thank you very much. Bye. (laughs) They've been around Nebuchadnezzar long enough to know that truth can be costly. But Daniel comes in. And he speaks truth. He understands, of course, that this vision has come from God. And he needs to level with the king and speak the truth, even if it costs. By the way, speaking truth frequently is costly. That is the daily experience of our brothers and sisters in southern Philippines, in Indonesia, in places in India like Orissa, in China, in multiple places in the Middle East, speaking the truth can be costly. But we need to speak it courageously. It can be costly here. Speaking the truth can cost you your job. Speaking the truth can cost you a grade or it can cost you a friend. But when the truth needs to be spoken, we need to be like Daniel and courageously speak the truth. Verse 19, Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Nebuchadnezzar was getting what he deserved. He was an arrogant, prideful, pompous, and cruel man. Nebuchadnezzar was responsible for the destruction of Daniel's whole country. He destroyed Jerusalem. He destroyed God's temple. Because of Nebuchadnezzar, Tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of Daniel's people were killed or suffered. And now they were in captivity. And yet, Daniel, instead of having animosity for Nebuchadnezzar here, when he hears the dream, Nebuchadnezzar goes silent. Because he is broken. Nebuchadnezzar speaks truth courageously, but he's also speaking truth compassionately. He truly cares about Nebuchadnezzar and he is broken at what he sees is going to happen to this man. Sin has disastrous consequences. Ultimately, Sin delivers everyone to hell. It condemns everyone to hell. Consequences are horrific. 
I wonder, does, does our heart break for the lost sinner? The great evangelist Dwight Moody said, I cannot preach on hell unless I preach with tears. I think that accounts for part of why he was such an influential and, and um, effective preacher of the Gospel. When he considered the fate of folks without Christ, it broke his heart. And it should break ours as well. Too many Christians are known for being judgmental. They seem eager to condemn people. But what we should be known for is compassion for having God's heart for lost folks. A heart for rescue. As God said through the prophet Ezekiel, one of Daniel's contemporaries, God said, Say to them, As I surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. The difference here is not a difference in in what the message is, but it's the difference of the heart of the messenger. We have a heart of compassion. Verse 20, The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached the heavens, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and in which was found food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches were the birds of heaven lived. It is you, O King. He says it with a breaking heart. It's you, O King, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the King saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a bond of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the king. You shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever He will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from that time that you know the kingdom, that heaven rules. Therefore, O King, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and in your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed so that perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Nebuchadnezzar is going to lose his mind, he says. He's going to go insane, going to live outdoors for seven periods of time. Maybe, probably seven years, could be seven seasons. We don't know exactly. But it's until he understands that God alone is ruler. The stump being left is some good news because he says that after he learns his lesson, Nebuchadnezzar is going to get his kingdom back. And that, by the way, is a major miracle if you follow any ancient kingdoms or even modern ones. When a president or king or leader goes insane or any gets sick or whatever, there's a feeding frenzy of people trying to take his place. But not here. 
This is the vision, but Daniel doesn't stop there. If you notice, Daniel doesn't leave Nebuchadnezzar hopeless. He gives some advice. Daniel speaks truth redemptively. He says, King Nebuchadnezzar, here is a solution to your, to your situation. He says, what you need to do is repent of your sin. This is coming from God. It will happen. He is the God Most High. He is the God of Heaven. He will do this. But here's what you can do. Repent. Change directions. That's what repent means. Change directions from your sin. And show that you believe God, that you trust Him by doing what He says. Doing what is righteous. Doing what is good. Show compassion to the poor, the oppressed. And He says, just maybe. That will make a difference. See, Daniel knows his Bible. He knows the story of Jonah who preached to the Ninevites and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. The Ninevites the most wicked people on the face of the earth. And the Ninevites, when they heard the message, they fell on their faces before God and they repented. And God stayed the judgment. And Daniel, I think, knows if God would do that for the Ninevites, maybe He'll do that for Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar hears the message. Our message, likewise, is a message of repentance and hope. It's not a message of judgment. It's a message of repentance and hope. There is forgiveness. There is restoration. God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son that whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. If you haven't heard anything else this morning, and you're here this morning, you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's the thing you need to hear most of all. God loves you and offers to you a message and a way of hope. Believe in Jesus. You'll have forgiveness and everlasting life. What did Nebuchadnezzar do? Verse 28. All this came upon Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is this not great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat like grass like an ox, and seven periods of time pass over you. So you note the most high rules of the kingdom then, and he gives it to whomever he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men. He ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. Amazingly, Nebuchadnezzar had this dream. He was frightened by the dream. He called in the guys. The guys wouldn't give an explanation. He calls in Daniel. Daniel tells him the truth. says, King, this is what's going to happen. But here's what you can do. And Nebuchadnezzar takes all that in and does absolutely nothing. We can speak the truth faithfully. We can speak the truth courageously. We can speak the truth compassionately. We can speak truth redemptively. And still many folks will not listen at all. 
Nebuchadnezzar was on his rooftop looking out over Babylon. He had inherited from his father a declining place, a declining kingdom. But under Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon was made great again. (laughs) And he was looking off of his rooftop and he was seeing this magnificent place that was Babylon. A, A magnificent city, impressive in its size. Impressive in its architecture and its parks and its, its beauty, its temples, its fortifications. The hanging gardens, one of the great wonders of the world. From a human standpoint, there was an awful lot to be proud of. And so Nebuchadnezzar got all full of himself. And just as God said, God humbled him. He had been the most powerful, famous man in the world, but for several years, he lived like a cow. Verse 34, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of earth are accounted as nothing and He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say, none can stay His hand or say to Him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor were returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Nebuchadnezzar says, I turned my head to heaven and and he honored God and his reason came back. His mind came back. And he says, by the grace of God, the kingdom came back even. And he honors God with some marvelous... His theology has gotten straightened out. He recognizes there is one God alone. And Nebuchadnezzar honors and worships Him. Humility before God is where clear thinking begins. The Bible puts it this way, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. (laughs) Those who practice it have good understanding. Sin is ultimately rebellion against God and it's pride. We've talked about that. And it is also not just sin, it is madness, it's foolishness. We, we see it in, in little two-year-olds, right? When they look up at mom and dad, mom and dad, you've been there, they look up at you and they go, no! Right? You remember that? Or some of us have grandkids. <laughs> and all of us as adults, we look at that and we just go... Good grief, what is it that gets this little thing to look at this big adult and go, no! And this kid who has absolutely zero understanding of how the real world works, speaking to the parent who loves him dearly and has great understanding of how the world works, who is trying to do what is good and beneficial and right, for this little one, while this little one shakes their fist and goes, no. And as people, we look at that and we go, what a stupid little kid. And then we shake our fist at God. It's madness. 
we who are such finite, frail creatures before an infinite, holy God who is the Creator of everything. Anyway. Last verse. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven for all His works are right and His ways are just and those who walk in pride He is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar speaks the truth here. Now, he speaks truth boldly, and I might add, with abandon. One of the most remarkable things about this story is that Nebuchadnezzar is writing it himself. And you go back and you look at ancient kings, and you go and look at modern politicians, and what you will find is that kings, politicians, they do not publish information about themselves that is embarrassing. Have you noticed that? People haven't changed from Nebuchadnezzar's day to ours. But Nebuchadnezzar is posting out there, this is an official edict. This was written up and tacked to telephone poles. Except they didn't have telephone poles. I don't know what they tacked stuff to. This was put out on social media. It was published in the papers. It was broadcast through the whole empire to people of every nation and every language, he says. And he puts his most embarrassing time of life in full display for everyone. Kings don't do that. Why does Nebuchadnezzar because Nebuchadnezzar, he says here, he's honoring God. He is more concerned that God gets the honor he deserves and that people get into right relation with God than he is concerned about his own reputation. I think that's the greatest evidence of his conversion right there. As Nebuchadnezzar says, it seemed the right thing to do. God wants to bring people into right relationship with Himself through faith in Jesus Christ. And God's plan A for getting that message to them is us, His people. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ... God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their sins against them. And He's entrusted to us this message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. Be reconciled to God! We implore you on His behalf. See, that's God's plan A. That's how your neighbor is going to hear about Jesus. How your coworker is going to hear about Jesus. Is if you tell them. That's God's plan A. And by the way, I haven't found the plan B anywhere in the Bible. Therefore, I think the big message here is let's be faithful. Let's be faithful to speak truth. Let's speak that truth courageously and let's speak that truth compassionately. Let's speak that truth redemptively. And let's do it with abandon. 
boldly. Father, we needed to hear this because truth is, so many of us so seldom share the message. We have forgotten what it is to be living in madness. We've forgotten what it is to be living apart from truth and apart from hope. May the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar remind us once you have been delivered from pride and arrogance and darkness and craziness, nothing else matters. We need to speak the truth and share it with anybody who will listen. So, Father, may You do that in us, Your people here at the chapel. May we be faithful witnesses for Jesus. His name we ask.